Welcome to The War from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, send it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Well, the war was heading to its final days in late July of 1945. To give an idea of the progress of the war, as well as the uh, some of the work going on in Europe now that VE Day had occurred, we'll bring you an episode of the CBS World News Today from July 29, 1945, followed by a statement from President Truman on that same day. World News Today, brought to you by Abro Corporation, world's largest manufacturer of radio phonographs with automatic record changers. This program is presented in behalf of Admiral dealers all over America. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations and leading news centers in our own country, CBS reporters are waiting to bring you first-hand news from the world's political and battlefronts. Now, here's Robert Trout. Within the hour, Columbia's chief of European correspondence, Edward R. Murrow, reported from London his belief that one of the principal negotiators at Potsdam has stated that his country will go to war with Japan and soon. Mr. Murrow, speaking from London, did not mention specifically the name of the big three nation, whose status of neutrality with Japan, he reports, is now rapidly drawing to a close, but even the Japanese must know perfectly well which nation it is. President Truman went to church this Sunday morning in Potsdam, then joined Prime Minister Attlee and Marshal Stalin in a business meeting. The negotiators issued another official statement which simply says, The work is progressing satisfactorily, and correspondents report that the conference is now approaching an end, and it may be all over within two or three days. In the Pacific, Australia's Minister for External Affairs, Dr. Herbert Evatt, has announced that Australia was not made a party to the Potsdam surrender ultimatum directed at Japan three days ago, and Australia does not subscribe to the terms, which, Dr. Evatt says, are much more lenient than those imposed on Germany. The Tokyo Radio announces that Allied bombers and fighters are attacking the Kure naval base on Honshu Island again today. No Allied confirmation yet, but Admiral Nimitz reports damage to 15 more Japanese vessels, nine of them warships, yesterday on Japan's inland sea. And Mustangs from Iwo Jima spent more than an hour over the Tokyo area yesterday without seeing a single enemy plane. Now for an interview, CBS correspondent Webley Edwards recorded from Guam with a superfortress crewman who had an astonishing experience over Japan. Admiral takes you to San Francisco. Back in his hometown of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, young Bernard Ender used to study geography at Hanover High School and wonder if he would ever visit those faraway places on the map. The other day, technical sergeant Bernard J. Endler, now a gunner on the B-29 called Sad Zaki, almost visited the Japanese city of Shimizu. To his horror, for he nearly fell on it. Will you tell us what happened, sergeant? Well, as we come in on this bomb run, and I was in a position by an open camera hat to observe the fires below. Immediately after bombs away, we hit this thermal. Thermal, now that's the updraft caused by the fires below, is that it? That's right, and they really toss you upward. It tossed our plane straight up about 1,800 feet in a split second. I hit the ceiling nine feet above the floor. So hard it would probably have knocked me out if I wasn't wearing my flight helmet. Then our pilot, Captain James Jenkins, got out of the thermal. And I fell down from the ceiling 
right into the open camera hatch. You mean there was nothing below that camera hatch but Japan itself, huh? It was nothing but the wide open spaces below me. I was halfway through the hatch and thought I was going all the way. When my flak suit caught on the sides and held me. And there I was, halfway out of the plane with the wind of the slipstream pulling hard at my leg. What did you do? Well, I started yelling just as loud as I could. I knew that my friend, Sergeant Bill Schaefer, he's from Johnstown, Pennsylvania. I knew he was close by, although he couldn't see me. But the noise was too loud for him to hear me. And I just hung on there for about five minutes. What did you think all this time? Well, I was sweating it out and hoping I wouldn't visit Japan by accident. And I was also wishing I had a parachute on. In case the slipstream pulled me through. Well, did your legs get cold hanging out there? No, we were just at a pretty low altitude. And anyway, I was sweating too much to feel cold anywhere. I kept hanging on to anything I could get a hold of and yelling for Schaefer. I knew he always looked in every once in a while to see if I was okay. And finally, here he came. He took one look and yelled something or other and grabbed me under the arm. With that slip screen tugging on me and my heavy flank suit, he sure had a hard job getting me out. But he finally made it. We closed the camera hatch and then just stood there looking at each other. I was grinning kind of silly and shaking and still sweating. But it sure felt good to be back out of that one. I'll bet. I guess your mother, Mrs. John J. Endler, back there on Stamford Street at Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, will be glad to know that you made it safe and sound, too. And also that you've completed 29 missions in this Super 40 of yours and have only six more to go. So congratulations and thank you, Technical Sergeant Bernard Endler, a B-29 gunner who, through an open camera hatch, almost paid a personal visit to Japan. This is Wobbly Edwards at Guam. I return you to Admiral in New York. Next, a word from Warren Sweeney. People certainly seem interested in what's going to be new and different in the post-war Admiral radios and Admiral major household appliances. More and more requests are pouring in every day for copies of Admiral's new free booklet entitled It's a Promise from Admiral. Have you asked for your copy yet? Then why not do it right now? Is all you have to do, just write It's a Promise together with your name and address on a penny postcard and mail it to Admiral in care of the radio station to which you are now listening. No matter what Admiral product interests you most, Admiral radios and radio phonographs with automatic record changers, Admiral dual-temp refrigerators, Admiral electric ranges, or Admiral home freezers, you'll want a copy of this fascinating full-colored booklet. And you get it free. Just write, It's a Promise, together with your name and address on a penny postcard. Then send it to Admiral in care of the radio station to which you're now tuned. Remember these three easy steps. Write, It's a Promise, your name and address, and mail to Admiral in care of the station. Now, here once again is Robert Trust. The Big Three meeting reported progress again today. For a direct report, Admiral takes you to CBS Berlin. Richard C. Hoddle reporting. The Big Three conference is going to a close. There will be two or three more meetings before it winds up, probably Wednesday. The delegates are anxious to get home, and chances are we'll return direct to their capital. The latest word we have today is that the conference continues very well. We still can't give you an authoritative picture of what has been discussed, what agreements made. During this past week, the ultimatum to Japan came as a surprise, drawn up with the participation of Chiang Kai-shek. This is a very flexible conference. You can't tell what is being discussed and how. 
There was a two-day break for the British election this past week, but work did not stop. As a matter of fact, work seems to have caught up with the agenda. Some of the results in the conference will appear in flesh and blood before the session at Potsdam is even finished. Tomorrow, for instance, the Allied Control Commission will meet in Berlin for the first time. General Eisenhower, Marshal Zhukov, and Field Marshal Montgomery, who had been awaiting the Big Three's decision, will sit down together and start putting into operation the Allied government of Germany. This seems to confirm that Germany was first on the Big Three agenda and was settled first. And certainly the fact that this joint control agency is meeting so soon indicates that full cooperation has been agreed on. Germany, which is the test case for much larger problems, will be dealt with together on an allied basis. And work has been going ahead in other fields, too. Committees and subcommittees have been meeting sometimes late into the night. And if we ever get the full report of this conference, it ought to be quite simple. But in this past week, something of far-reaching importance has taken place in Potsdam, standing quite apart from the subject matter of the talks. The composition of the Big Three has been changed again. Before Potsdam, the words Big Three seemed quite naturally to mean Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin. They started the working partnership made fundamental agreements together. But the biological process of death removed Franklin Roosevelt. Harry Truman took his place, and this Big Three meeting began without a hit. Then, the democratic process of election removed Winston Churchill, and Clement Attlee stepped into his shoes. And now again, it seems as if the Big Three are carrying on without changing their name or their pace. Hopes for a working world organization depend on just such an independence of personalities. The cast of characters will always change. The future must rest on a permanence of democratic institutions. This is Richard C. Hoddle in Berlin, returning to Admiral in New York. For the news from Britain and an interview with our top-ranking airmen in that part of the world, Admiral takes you to CBS London, Douglas Edwards reporting. It's been announced today that the state opening of Parliament has been postponed for one week, and the King will make a speech to the new Parliament August 15th. The new House of Commons will meet as expected on Wednesday next when a Speaker will be elected, and on Thursday about 500 of the new MPs will be sworn in. The postponement of the formal opening of Parliament means that Mr. Attlee will be able to complete the talks at Potsdam without undue haste. On Wednesday next, August 1st, is the anniversary, the 38th anniversary of the founding of the United States Army Air Forces. Indeed, a young branch of America's great armed service, but one that has packed a tremendous punch in the job done against the Germans and the day-to-day -day story of the softening up of Japan is common knowledge. This week, the famous 8th Air Force and its present commander in England, Major General William E. Kepner, will observe that anniversary and at the same time be accorded a unique honor by the people of two communities with whom they've been closely associated. General Kepner, an airman's airman of the first magnitude, will personally be presented the freedom of knowledge. His name will be added to a list including William Pitt, King Edward, Rear Admiral Nelson, and others, many illustrious names in English history. And he will accept on behalf of the 8th Air Force the freedom of the boroughs of Cambridge. General Kepner is here with us in the London studio today. What do you think of this gesture on the part of the English people, sir? I consider it a very high privilege and a great honor. Norwich and Cambridge have been little hometowns for thousands of our airmen during their tour of duty in Britain. They have been rendezvous points for our recreation. The hospitality has been splendid in both communities. 
I consider the honor which they have extended to us this week an indication of a desire on the part of the people of England to openly recognize the splendid personal relations that have existed between each individual in the Air Force and the citizens of the area in which we have been located. It is a credit to the 8th Air Force, and it means our men have distinguished themselves as representatives of the United States in a foreign country. I know the folks at home are proud of them. I'm sure they are, sir. General Kepner is the man probably most responsible for solving one of the Air Force's hardest problems, the problem of getting long-range fighter support over Berlin. Would you tell us how it was done? It was a matter of teamwork. General Arnold recognized the need of fighter escort. We had to have the fast planes and well-trained pilots to soften up the German Air Force before the arrival of our bombers over the target and for their protection during the attack. We first had to produce the airplanes to take care of that need. It was necessary to take along more fuel and at the same time retain fighting ability. It was a big job from the designer's standpoint, but the factories built the planes and got them to us. We worked out certain modifications for this theater. The British set to work producing gasoline tanks until our own arrived. Tanks that could be discarded in the air after being drained of fuel. British designers and workmen made constant improvements, made bigger and better tanks as flight distances increased. It was also necessary to initiate a more rigorous training procedure for our pilots. Made bigger and better tanks as flight distances increased. It was also necessary to initiate a more rigorous training procedure for our pilots. They worked hard. They took the risk, and against heavy odds. They flew in what had been called impossible flying weather until the Germans were beaten. And the same job is being done against Japan. Will the same planes be used against the Japs, sir? We're still using some of the same types in the Pacific, but the Air Force never stands still. The number of B-29s and improved fighters against the Japs is increasing and will become ever larger. But General Kepner, what would you say will be the air weapon of the future? There will always be men with brains. One of the great weapons will probably be a development from the buzz bomb. Guided pilotless planes in great numbers which can be controlled even more than they are now and which will carry tremendous destructive power. That's one of the many reasons why it is so vital we never have another war. Before we sign off, sir, would you please tell America what you told me about the men of the American Air Forces just before we went on the air? I like them. They're wonderful men. I would be proud to have any one of them as my own son. Thank you, Major General William E. Kepner. We return you to Admiral in New York. Our Pacific Air Forces are destined to make this coming year the greatest in their history. For a summary of some of their problems, here's Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. There's every evidence that the tide of American air power is rising rapidly in the Western Pacific. The very fact of the accomplishments of the 20th Air Force, operating only from the small islands of the Marianas, 1,300 miles from the Japanese mainland, gives us some forecast of what may now be done with the new bases on Okinawa an island which is considerably larger than all our Mariana spaces put together and less than half as far from Japan. Add to this the increase in operational force, which comes with the release of the 8th Air Force from the European Theater of Operations and its transfer to the Pacific, as you just heard General Kefner talking about from London, and the future for Japan begins to look very dark indeed. We should not allow ourselves to think in terms of a great tidal wave of air power suddenly overwhelming the Japanese and wiping them out. It will not be done that way. 
It is still a matter of hard work, of building bases, of ferrying tons and tons of supplies by plane and ship, overcoming each enemy opposition as, uh, as it occurs, retraining crews for Pacific conditions. It's still three times the effort to maintain a single bomber operating against Japan as it was to maintain a single bomber operating against Germany. Our air power in the Pacific is growing step by step, and not in one sudden vast acceleration of violence. But the point is that it is growing, and that the enemy can do nothing whatever to retard its growth and very little to resist it. That's because the enemy no longer has any sea power. The remnants of his navy have found their grave in the inland sea under the hammering of our bombs. Because he has little of any air power, nothing more than some hoarded defensive squadrons which he seems to be holding out against the day of invasion. His industrial machine, smaller and less complex than the German, is being broken up little by little. He has left only the ground troops of his army, and it remains to be seen how well they will be able to defend him in the hour of final trial if his will to resist lasts until that hour comes. Now here again is Robert Trout. Next, the news from France. Admiral takes you to CBS Paris, Charles Collingwood reporting. 89-year-old Marshal Pétain, who was once as beloved and respected in his country as General of the Armies Pershing is in ours, is on trial for his life, charged by the state with treason. During this past week, the greatest statesmen in France's recent history have followed one another on the witness stand, accusing the only living Marshal of France of having delivered his country into the hands of the enemy, of having corrupted it and debased it to accommodate the designs of the enemy. Pétain himself sat through it all, saying nothing, refusing to reply to questions, looking old and shrunken in his big armchair. By far the bulk of last week's testimony was designed to show that Pétain signed the armistice with Germany before it was necessary, and that he prevented France from continuing to fight. A French general testified that Pétain had done more to help Germany than was necessary. He cited an agreement to turn over all of France's heavy artillery in North Africa to help General Rommel, and also the use of the port of Bizerta and the Tunisian railway to help supply Rommel's Africa Corps. Then yesterday, a series of witnesses testified, mostly with hearsay and circumstantial evidence, that long before the war, French fascists, with the aid of Axis agents, sought to put Pétain in power and establish with him at the head a French dictatorship which would make common cause with Germany, Italy, and Spain. Tomorrow, Edouard Herriot, still one of the most powerful political figures in France, will take the stand against Pétain. With his testimony, the state will rest its case, content that they have built up enough evidence to send Marshal Pétain to his death. This is Charles Collingwood in Paris, returning you to Admiral in New York. Officials in our own country are eagerly awaiting the next move in the psychological warfare directed against Japan. For details, Admiral takes you to CBS Washington. Tris Coffin reporting. The mood of Washington is very often misleading. This is by way of preface to tell you there is an atmosphere of expectancy and optimism here on the war in the Pacific. There is a strong, almost buoyant feeling that there may be important developments within the next two weeks. The Japanese protests that they cannot accept the Potsdam Proclamation are not regarded in Washington as final. Instead, the Far Eastern experts believe a reply will be received through the same indirect channels as the peace feelers which the Japs have been shooting out during the past two months. It is believed this reply will be a request for direct negotiations between the United States and Japan. 
the Japanese may renew their offer to surrender if the Allies do not invade or occupy the home islands. Incidentally, there is a united front in Washington against accepting any such proposals. Under Secretary of State Joseph Grew assures me he is absolutely opposed to any negotiated peace. He says any report that he is for a soft peace is, in his words, absolute bunk. Mr. Grew, who is regarded as our foremost authority on Japan, believes the Japanese islands must be occupied. The State Department view generally is cautious. Officials there with whom I have talked do not believe that Japan will capitulate until the islands are invaded. They say that peace elements in Japan are afraid to force the issue into the open at this time for a very practical reason. They are afraid of being killed or imprisoned by the militarists, the jingoists who run the Great Japan Political Association. The Suzuki cabinet is regarded in Washington as weak, one which would not dare sue for peace while the militarists remain strong. It is merely an interim cabinet, which will fall when either one of the two strong opposing forces come out on top. One member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee today interpreted the Potsdam Statement to mean Japan has one last chance to surrender before Russia enters the war. He is Senator Walter George, who told reporters he assumes the Soviet knew in advance of the three-power ultimatum. With the passage of the United Nations Charter, there is a strong movement in the Senate to have that body represented at the final peace conference. I return you to Admiral in New York. Japanese Premier Suzuki's official rejection on behalf of the Japanese government of the Allied Surrender Ultimatum must surely have been expected by the statesman who drew up the surrender demand at Potsdam. There was nothing really new in the ultimatum. The military terms are the same ones as those laid down for Japan at the Cairo conference a year and a half ago. And, of course, Japan could have quit the war under those terms at any time since December of 1943. No, the military terms have not changed, but the military situation has. Japan is as clearly doomed to defeat as any nation at war ever was in history. The Japanese homeland is undergoing a pre-invasion blasting and burning, which is far more severe than the pounding of Germany before the landings on the Normandy beaches. Plainly, neither Allied officials nor Japanese leaders can foresee any method by which Japan could win the war now that Japan has lost the basic gamble on German victory. But what is not yet certain is whether the Japanese are convinced that they must submit to unconditional surrender, a surrender in which the Allies make all the terms and the Japanese make nothing but sounds of acceptance. They must, these enemy leaders, they must realize that the time is running short in fact, there's plain evidence that they do. But there's no proof yet that they have abandoned hope of making a better deal, of inserting a few terms of their own in the surrender document, of saving something from the lost gamble with which to start again when the Allied world may have grown just a bit careless once more. Premier Suzuki's official rejection today proves nothing either way. Even if Japan were preparing to accept the ultimatum, even then, the present government of Japan could not be expected to be the group which would do the accepting. Almost certainly, the Japanese would feel it wise to create at least the outward appearance of a change of government, perhaps even some kind of make-believe revolution, which would bring forward a new set of Japanese officials to divert the blame for defeat from the men who have ruled Japan so long. 
All that is certain today is that the longer Japan waits, the greater will grow the allied pressure from every direction and in every way. For the campaign to drive the enemy into surrender is only now gathering force. And now, once again, here is Warren Sweeney. A recent survey by a leading woman's magazine showed that most people want a radio phonograph with a pull-out type of automatic record changer. And that's Admiral Slideaway, the exclusive Admiral feature that makes loading and unloading the Admiral automatic record changer so easy. All you do is open the cabinet doors of your new Admiral, and the complete phonograph turntable and automatic record changer glides off in plain view, easy to reach. When you close the doors, the entire mechanism disappears. It's as simple as that with Admiral Slideaway. The new Admiral Automatic Record Changer, too, is going to surprise you with its simplicity of construction and operation. It will play 10, 12-inch, or 12, 10-inch records in rapid continuity. And we mean rapid, for the Admiral changes records in just five seconds. No damage to your favorite records either with an Admiral, for it will not chip or break them. But you can see how foolproof the changer is and how easily Admiral Slideaway works if you'll send for the free booklet titled It's a Promise from Admiral. Just write It's a Promise together with your name and address and send it to Admiral in care of this radio station. I'll repeat that. Write It's a Promise, your name and address, and mail to Admiral in care of this station. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Admiral Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set, and post-war makers of Admiral dual-temp refrigerators, Admiral home freezers, Admiral electric ranges. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave, direct from leading news centers of the world. This is Warren Sweeney reporting coast to coast for Admiral. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Let there be no mistake. We shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. It was to spare the Japanese people from utter destruction that the ultimatum of July the 26th was issued at Potsdam. Their leaders promptly rejected that ultimatum. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. Welcome back. The Potsdam Declaration had been issued on July the 26th of 1945 um, by the government of China, the United States, and the United Kingdom. As we could tell, the newsmen were a little puzzled, or in the least, because this seemed to reiterate terms that have been available to Japan since 1943. However, with the hindsight of history, we know that the Potsdam Declaration, as issued on the 26th of July, was one last chance for Japan to surrender. At the end of the document is this uh, phrase. We call upon the government of Japan to proclaim now the unconditional surrender of all Japanese armed forces and to provide proper and adequate assurances of their good faith in such action. The alternative for Japan is prompt and utter destruction. In the usual parlance of statecraft, it might have been easy to dismiss this statement as saber-rattling. But on August 6, 1945, 
Japan and the rest of the world learned that this was not an idle threat. Here is a news bulletin from that day. The White House has just made an important announcement on the war. And to bring you this story, we interrupt our program to take you to Washington. I have just returned from the White House where it has just been announced that the United States is now using an atomic bomb, the most powerful explosive yet developed. At the White House, Eben Ayers, presidential press secretary, released a statement by the President of the United States on the atomic bomb. Here is President Truman's statement. The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. We won the race of discovery against the Germans. We have used it in order to shorten the agony of war, in order to save the lives of thousands and thousands of young Americans. We shall continue to use it until we completely destroy Japan's power to make war. On August 9th, there was a second bombing, this time in the city of Nagasaki. And here now is an eyewitness account by Captain Leonard Cheshire of the events. At the time of the explosion, we were wearing Polaroid welder's glasses. They were so dark that even the tropical sun showed through them as nothing more than a vague pinpoint of light. Even then, the explosion, when eventually it came, was so bright that it had the same effect as if night had been turned into day. A few seconds later, when it was safe to take off our glasses, we looked out towards the target and saw a vast ball of fire. It was about 2,000 feet in the air and half a mile in diameter. This fire, which generated almost 10 million degrees of heat, began rocketing up into the heavens at a speed of something like 20,000 feet a minute. After 15 seconds, the flame had died out and turned into a cloud. Exactly what that cloud looked like, I do not suppose any words will ever describe. Unlike any other phenomenon the world has ever seen, it was possessed of some diabolical activity, as though it were a horrible form of life. Its heat was so great that even at a range of 20 miles, we could see the dust from the earth being sucked up into the air like a vortex. The cloud rose to a height of 60,000 feet in less than five minutes, and there it stayed. On flying close to it, we saw that its color was a sort of luminous yellow, like sulfur. Throughout the whole time, it remained a boiling, turbulent mass and continued expanding until it reached some two miles across. We knew from what we had been told that its activity would destroy anything that came within its reach and therefore we stayed out of range, some five or six miles away. The war was about to come to an end, yet the nature of the way the war ended would change the face of the history of the 20th century. And we'll take a closer look at what went on and what led up to the explosion of the atom bomb over the course of the next couple of days here on the war. 
In the meantime, send your comments to Box13 at GreatDetectives.net. This uh, program is provided as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, GreatDetectives.net. And Ken Curlin provides the opening theme music, KenCurlin.com from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.